Bible to that. And it's not extremely long. It is an interesting chapter. Well, if you are able to stand, or if you feel like it, you can stand with me as I read. If you're not able to stand or you don't feel like it, uh, we won't talk about you behind your back, okay? You probably care more than anybody else. So listen to the language, please. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A, breezed ru- ru- a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, or the, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. This is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and hills. And dry up all their vegetation. I will make their rivers coastlands. And I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blinds by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them. And crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images. Who say to the molded images, you are our gods. Hear, you deaf And look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but you do not observe. Opening the ears, but he does not hear. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes, and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey. And no one delivers for plunder. And no one says, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. 
It has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know, and it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that's in the text here, the, the, the issue of, of, of discipline to, for those who rebel and disobey. And, and Lord, at the same time, thank you for your promises related to your faithful servant, the one to whom we look and trust in. And I pray that um, this would help us look forward even more uh, to his second advent. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So it's kind of interesting, in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, Isaiah was the one that did all of the talking. Of course, through the, he was the instrument of the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 41, God did all of the talking. But in this chapter, chapter 42, both Isaiah and the Lord speak. So now they're uh, doing it in tandem, as it were. Uh, they're talking back and forth about two different servants, one who is faithful and one who is not. The ideal servant is, the, the ideal servant of Yahweh is a faithful individual. And the wayward servant of Yahweh is a rebellious nation. So two servants are presented. In the historical context, the nation of Israel is the current unfaithful servant of Yahweh. They're both blind and deaf okay, to spiritual and moral issues, the law of God. The ideal uh, faithful servant of Yahweh is, of course, the future Messiah who's coming to restore all things, including uh, give sight to the blind and hearing to those who are spiritually dense. Okay, Kind of an interesting chapter. So it begins, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, of course, this is God speaking here. The, this particular servant of Yahweh, he has an exalted position before him, as you see there. Uh, Yahweh upholds him. Yahweh has elected him. I say Yahweh because that's the translation of the Lord in the text. Yahweh delights in him, and Yahweh has placed his spirit upon him. So now all of those particular things are stated in the present tense, but the mission of this servant is stated as something that is yet to take place in the future. Uh, this servant is waiting to be uh, dispatched, if you will, to be sent out for what God has called him to do. And so here's what he will not do, and here's what he will do. To begin with, he'll not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. Now, real quick, the, uh, when the ancient Jews translated this uh, text from the Hebrew into the Greek, uh, they understand their native tongue here to mean that the Messiah would not be argumentative okay, uh, from the Hebrew words. He wouldn't be a, a quarreler or someone who would uh, you know, raise a stink in public. That's kind of the idea. Uh, they translated it this way when they produced what is called the Greek Septuagint. It says, Behold my servant in whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That is, they will not hear his voice in that manner in the streets. Okay? Uh, his voice is definitely going to be heard because Messiah is a teacher, but he won't be heard as a loudmouth shouting down his opponents. Um, that's not in his character. 
It says a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, and he will bring forth justice for truth. It's not idioms that we use today, a bruised reed or smoking flax. Uh, Both represent, uh, the bruised reed represents something, that which is about to break, uh, something that is weak, and then smoking flax is something that is extinguishing, okay? And uh, Jesus came to Israel when they were in a state of weakness, right? They were in crazy weakness. She was oppressed politically and economically by the Romans, and they were oppressed spiritually by their own religious leadership. That's why Jesus said, all who are weary, right, come to me and I'll give you rest. He's speaking in spiritual terms. He didn't come to crush them under the weight of all the things they were experiencing. He came to build them up, to strengthen and revive their hope in God uh, and his, his coming kingdom. He came to restore their faith and uh, to increase their, their trust in God's word. And then as the end there says, he will bring forth justice for truth. Uh, that's something that people experience as they heed Jesus' instruction and then, and then they walk in it. Uh, justice, truth. Now you might remember when we were in Matthew 12, uh, we visited this section of Isaiah 42 because Isaiah attributes the fulfillment of these things to Jesus. That he's the one in the text that's doing that. Now what is interesting though is that verse 1 through 4 are grammatically connected in the Hebrew, but Matthew leaves out verse four. And the New Testament authors often do this. They'll take part of a saying regarding Messiah, but they'll cut off some of it. Let's look at perhaps why that happened. Verse four says, he will not fail nor be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So the divine declaration about what the Messiah will accomplish, I think here is encouraging, especially as we consider the current state of affairs in the world. Now, I don't know if you guys keep up with the UN. Uh, I sent the document out to my elders earlier this week, but the UN Human Rights Council is encouraging all nations to decriminalize sex with minors. All nations. They're encouraging all nations where a minor can provide consent, they say that should be decriminalized. They would also like all governments to abstain from standing in the way of children who are trying to transition to allow all forms of of, um, gender-affirming care, all issues related to drug charges. They want that overlooked. And one of the reasons that they gave is because people who are charged with such crimes, it's too hard on them. There's, there's no discussion in there about the victim. It's all benefits to the perpetrator. I don't know, how does that sit with you guys? Truth and justice are being trashed in the last days, just as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But here, the work of Messiah in, in the historical context that Isaiah is speaking out of, what he says, when he comes, remember, Matthew only quotes 1 through 3, and he leaves out, Verse four, this, the text that's in front of us, which says he will establish justice in the earth. Is it? Has it been? No. Are the coastlands, uh, the idea is, uh, you know, coast to coast, all people, are they waiting for his law? Here it probably means his instruction. Torah 
is instruction. That's really the meaning of the word. Now, some believe that this will ultimately take place by the preaching of the gospel and the, the Christianization of the world. Um, I've said before, I'll give those people an A for optimism, uh, but that's nowhere found in the scriptures. Uh, others try and allegorize the passage and say these realities are currently taking place in heaven or will take place in the new earth. But the immediate context and the general sense of the passage is that Christ will accomplish this on the current earth, just like he did the things in verse 1 through 3. There's no change in the text that says, well, the old earth passes away, and then this is established in the new earth. It doesn't say that. Also, he, it says that he will accomplish this in the midst of injustice. I mean, if you're going to establish justice, it's because of a lack of justice. So this is in the midst of injustice, conflict, and difficulty. Now, real quick, injustice conflict, difficulty, those are not realities in heaven. God's people in heaven are not being oppressed, right? That's not happening, okay? There's no difficulties in his presence. There are things that thrive in our present world, okay, while justice wanes. But when Christ returns, he will bring about justice in the earth, and the Gentiles will wait for his instruction. Now, when we look at the prophets, they just prophesy about what Messiah will do when he's on the earth. They make no distinction in first coming and second coming. That's a distinction that Christ introduced through Revelation and then the apostles. But the Old Testament prophets, they're like, when Messiah comes, he will just do all of these things. He accomplished some of them in his first coming and he will accomplish some in his second coming. This will only happen what we're looking at in verse four, when he sits on his earthly throne, just as Gabriel, the angel, told Mary, he will sit on his father David's throne and he will rule forever, okay? I think that's why Matthew omitted verse four from Isaiah 42 because it says these things are being fulfilled. Well, he only filled verse one through three. He wasn't fulfilling verse four at that time. I'm telling you, he's going to, okay? He's going to. Thus says God, the Lord, okay, there it is. Uh, thus says God, Elohim, uh, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. So this passage and, and those who kind of, the ones that immediately follow, they give, or they're just giving assurance of this future reality when Messiah comes and accomplishes everything that uh, has been said. The sovereign creator of the universe, the, the one who created life, sustains it. He's not only called his servant to accomplish these things, he's going to ensure that they succeed. He's backing all of this. As he said in verse one, I'm upholding him. I'm ensuring that all of my decrees that I've commissioned for him to fulfill, we're going to do it. So we can say God and his Christ are an unstoppable force in the universe. Aren't you thankful? Yeah. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I'll hold your hand. I'll keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now, I love the statement that Yahweh has given his servant as a covenant and a light. The coming of Messiah is in fulfillment of a covenant that God made. Okay, It's Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. He's told Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
So it's not just the Jews, but it's all humanity that is a part of God's plan, this cosmic plan of redemption. So when Christ comes, it's fulfilling that promise that is made to Abraham. Jesus himself is given as the covenant. God is assuring us that what he started, he will finish. All things decreed will come to pass. He says that he's been appointed or commissioned, covenanted to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Of course, we're talking in spiritual terms. Man, all men are blind spiritually. They're dead in sin and trespasses, as Paul says. Their minds are darkened. They're prisoners. <clears throat> They're slaves to unrighteousness, Romans 6. So God has sent Jesus, who's, of course, his first order of business was to, you know, bring the truth of the gospel that he might regenerate the soul of man, which then opens his eyes to spiritual things. It liberates his mind from the oppression of sin. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. So Yahweh is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. This is God's way of signing off. It's kind of like a mic drop, okay? His name is Yahweh. Now, we've already talked about uh, the whole issue of the covenant. Uh, Yahweh is the name that God gave to Israel in connection with the covenant. So you might, you know, theologians often refer to Yahweh is his covenant name, okay? And so when he puts his name on something, it's typically related to his character, his covenant, his promise, okay? So his name attached to all of this, the decrees that have been stated, this is a guarantee. It will come to pass. And then another unique thing about Yahweh in terms of the rest of the world, so all of the pagan world, every pagan culture essentially has what we call a pantheon. Uh, they have many gods, okay? The Greeks, the Romans had many gods, the Canaanites, if you go to India today, they have many millions of gods, okay? It's a pantheon. Well, all of those gods are responsible for different things occurring in the universe. So some glory has to go to this particular god, some glory to this particular god. But God says, I'm the only god. And so all glory for all things in the universe must be funneled to me. And there's just no way that I'm going to distribute my glory among these pagan idols, Okay, these dumb, lifeless things. I am responsible for bringing the universe into existence. As he says, I've created all life on the planet. I've given breath to humanity. I've stretched out the heavens. I've done all of this and you've rebelled against me and I'm going to do my best to redeem you. I, I will be the one that's glorified for this. No chunk of wood, no molten image of gold, lifeless stuff. I will take glory for what I do. He says, behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Do you remember in chapter 41, Yahweh developed a criteria for deity. Remember we talked about that? The real test of deity is that they stand outside of time and eternity. And so they, they have all knowledge. Okay, we, we say foreknowledge. We say God has foreknowledge, even the New Testament, those he foreknew, well, it's actually a euphemism because God doesn't actually have foreknowledge. We say that because from our perspective, it's foreknowledge. But God just possesses knowledge. 
He stands outside of time, possesses all knowledge, okay? And so he knows the very end of everything from the beginning. So remember, he taunted the idols, the pagan gods, and said, so, if you're a god, tell me what happens in the future. Tell me about, remember, Cyrus, this one that I will call who will liberate uh, Israel from Babylon. Okay, so here he's saying, look, the former things have come to pass, and now I'm telling you about things uh, that will come. Okay, so he's again declaring his superiority over the idols. I know the future, you don't, because you're nothing. Also, something that's important, um, the difference between, you know, the prophet, from our perspective, he tells the future, right? He tells us things that will come to pass. Of course, God has, he possesses all that knowledge. But here we're talking about decrees. It's not passive knowledge. It's not, I know it will happen, but I'm not really causing it to happen. That's not what God is saying. He's saying, I've decreed all this to happen. I'm going to ensure that it takes place. I'm going to cause it to take place. I will do these things. And I'm telling you in advance, and that's an expression of sovereignty. I can tell you all of my plans, and there's nothing you can do to thwart them. Nothing, nothing at all. So God's done speaking and now Isaiah chimes in and he says, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout out loud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Isaiah, after receiving all this revelation from the Lord, he says, it's time for a call to worship. He's going to execute all these things in the earth. He's going to actually bring global justice. And he says, let's stop and let's worship. You see it? It's a call to worship. Sing to the Lord a new song. Okay? A call to worship. It's a, it's a response to what God has promised. And Isaiah knows the Lord well enough that nothing he has said will fall to the ground. All of the redeemed of every age are going to sing. So as far as I can tell, in Isaiah 42, that's the first mention of singing a new song. And then we come to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and it's this wild scene. Um, you remember in the beginning of chapter 4, John in the vision, he hears a voice like a trumpet, trumpet that says, come up here. And he's instantly ushered into the throne room of God, and he sees, you know, the the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and, and then you know, chapter five rolls in and there's that whole conversation about you know, <clears throat> he who sat on the throne had the scroll in his hand and, and they looked and said, who's worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals? And, and then nobody is found and John begins to weep. It's my understanding that he weeps because if that scroll is not opened, it means that the evils and injustice in the world will come. But then the lamb of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah steps you know, front and center. And then the, the angel says, hey, he's prevailed. And he's going to initiate. You talk about God's sovereignty, just real quick, which I think is amazing about all of the end times things that everybody frets about. So Jesus will take the scroll and, from his father, who has 
you know, commissioned him not just to tell us of things that will come to pass. Jesus will initiate all of it. So when you get to chapter six and you see the four horses of the apocalypse, they are in their stalls until Jesus breaks the seal. They can do nothing. They can't do anything. They're under his sovereign control. Isn't that amazing? So people fret about the future. Look, if you do, you don't understand the sovereignty of God. He holds the scroll and nothing happens until he says go. Nothing. Yeah. So in this heavenly scene, he comes and takes the scroll and then the, this, there's angels everywhere as far as John can see. And it says they sang a new song, not just angels, but here it's the redeemed. They say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. That's astounding. Now, this is future because that hadn't happened yet when John wrote that. The gospel had not made it around the globe. Isn't it exciting that John is experiencing prophetically this reality of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that had been redeemed. We're waiting for that time, and then they will sing So the redeemed, whether in heaven or on earth, they're going to shout for joy when they witness the work of Christ. So currently, Jesus has fulfilled everything that he was commissioned to do at his first coming. We're looking back at that. But there are tons of things that he's going to wrap up in his second coming. Okay, And the nature of those things is completely different. Completely different. So to Isaiah's call to worship, God responds. He says, I've held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands and I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. So redemption, of course, is not the only thing on God's agenda. In his pursuit to save his people, he just has to crush his enemy. There will always be those who resist what he's trying to do. They will despise the sacrifice. They'll despise his people. And they'll even get in the way of God when he seeks to save. So at this point, God, he shifts his attention away from his faithful servant, okay, who's in the distant future, to rebuke his unfaithful servant uh, during the days of Isaiah. Remember, it's the nation Israel. Hear you deaf. That's an interesting statement. And look, you blind. That would be insulting, wouldn't it? That you may see. And he says, who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he was perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? Basically, who, who, who out there is as blind as my own people and, and as, as deaf? Seeing many things, but they do not observe. Opening the ears, but he does not hear. So he's telling Israel, his unfaithful servant, Listen, listen up, look, pay attention. But they do not because their hearts are corrupt and their minds are darkened by sin. 
So in verse 19, God actually is really lamenting their condition. You guys, these are the people of his covenant. He still refers to them as his servant. Remember in chapter 41, he calls them his elect, his servant, the the children of Abraham, his friend, and he just goes on and on. And, And we know that that's unconditional. But he laments this condition that they're in, blind and deaf, forsaken God who redeemed them. He says, is there anybody as blind as my people? I mean, if anybody should see and hear, who should it be in the ancient world? It should be Israel. Like Paul says to the Romans, you know, what advantage then is it to be a Jew? He says, much in every way. They have the oracles of God, the promises, the covenants, the fathers, and he just goes on and on and on. Prophets. One commentator says, clearly we have been brought back with a jolt from the future's perfection, that is the future servant, to the present lamentable failure. The current state of Israel was spiritually and morally pathetic. So you have this massive contrast between God's current servant, Israel, and his uh, future faithful servant, the Messiah. Deaf, blind, dwelling in darkness. It's crazy. He says, again, speaking about the Christ, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. And most people believe that this is fulfilled in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You remember, Jesus is always saying, you have heard that it was said, and he's speaking of rabbinical tradition. He doesn't say, uh, you have seen as it is written. So he's not appealing to the authority of scripture. He's talking about the teaching of the rabbis. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And then he gives the true interpretation of the word of God. So here it says, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable or restore it to its rightful place in the hearts and the minds of the people. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they're hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers for plunder and no one says restore. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. It's just a mess. He says, who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? So, you know, sadly, many in Israel will be too dense to understand the nature of their suffering. You know, too deaf, too blind to realize that what they will endure is the Lord's discipline for sin. They'll get disciplined, but not understand what's going on because they're just, they're that far gone. But Isaiah does his best to communicate to his people saying, who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore, he has poured on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. It has set him on fire all around, yet he didn't know. They could, somebody could be lit on fire and, and not be aware of it, and it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. So Isaiah points to the Lord as the one who has brought all of this upon Israel because of her sin. Okay? But many in Israel, in spite of all the prophets, all of the what we call the pre-exilic prophets, the one who spoke before the Babylonian exile, regardless of all that they said, uh, they won't realize what's happening when they're judged. They do not know it. They did not take it to heart. So when we look at historically the generation that went into exile, most of them, they didn't get it. Some did. Those born in captivity actually seemed to be more receptive 
okay? And then when they returned to Israel, they were eager to listen to the prophets and then build the city, the wall, the temple. But those older people, you know, when you compare the, uh, the Jews coming out of Egypt and those, or all that went through Egypt, those came out, all that went through the exile and came out, there's all these very interesting similarities. You know, most of them perished in the wilderness that, or the first generation, except for three men. It wasn't until the next generation. It's crazy. So in spite of Israel's failure to recognize God's hand in judgment, again, chapter 43, like verse 15 and 16 of this chapter, once again looks ahead to how God will faithfully preserve his elect people. So you see this constant, Isaiah talks about, well, he talks about judgment, and then he talks about preservation. He talks about discipline. He talks about restoration. And it's like just the crazy roller coaster ride in the book of Isaiah. So when we get into chapter 43, it's uh, more of a discussion of um, restoration, encouragement. And uh, then there's some really snarky theology uh, from God himself. And so I like that. You guys like sarcasm, right? Okay. So God will really start to make fun in the next couple chapters of idols, idolatry. And the, the, to God, it's this crazy idea that, that man could believe in more than one God. Yeah. Go ahead and stand up and I'll get you out of here. Well, Father, I'm thankful.